Hello, you're listening to Let the Bible Speak. Let the Bible Speak is the radio ministry of the Free Presbyterian Church. Stephen Pollock is the pastor of Free Presbyterian Church of Malvern, Pennsylvania. The church is located at the junction of 401 and Mallon Road. Thank you for joining us today as Dr. Pollock opens the Word of God and lets the Bible speak. Thank you for listening to another episode of Let the Bible Speak. I am very thankful that you do listen week by week as we seek to present the Word of God in a way that will edify those who trust in Christ and perhaps even bring those who do not know the Saviour to a sitting faith in Christ Jesus. It is always our desire to present Christ and today we are looking at a section of Luke chapter 23 that deals with the darkness that shrouds Calvary as our Lord gave his life a ransom for many. It's part of a wider study in the Gospel of Luke and all of those sermons can be accessed on sermonaudio.com forward slash Malvern. Indeed on that website you'll find an archive of all the sermons that are preached from or pulpit by various speakers. I trust if you go there you will find many resources that will help you to grow in your faith. But for today, let's turn to Luke chapter 23 and consider again the Saviour as he dies on the cross. And it is our prayer and desire that the Word of God will be a tremendous benefit to your soul. May God bless you all. Well, please turn your Bibles this morning to Luke chapter 23. So let's read today from Luke 23. We'll read together from the verse number 44. Luke 23, reading from the verse number 44. And it was about the sixth hour, and there was a darkness over all the earth until the ninth hour. And the sun was darkened, and the veil of the temple was rent in the midst. And when Jesus had cried with a loud voice, he said, Father, into thy hands I commend my spirit. And having said thus, he gave up the ghost. Amen. May God bless and encourage our hearts in his word today. My desire this morning is to focus on the darkness. Verse number 44, it was about the sixth hour, and there was a darkness over all the earth until the ninth hour. The events of the three hours are kept from our view. If you think of all that we've seen up to this point, we've seen so many things, and the Bible text has shown us things that we ought to behold, if you like, with the eye of faith. We saw the Lord in the garden, and we saw him falling in agony, and we saw that sweat, that blood sweat that fell from his brow. We saw the lights approaching, we saw the men coming to imprison and to take away our Lord. And as they come, we consider him and we see him falling backwards as he confirms, I am. We see a kiss, we see the flash of a sword, and we see a miracle as an ear is reattached. We see a man being led away, a disciple, and we see his tears as he denies the Lord. And we see a ruler washing his hands, a murderous robber being released, a purple robe, a crown of thorns, a bloodied and bruised man struggling to carry his cross on the road to the mount. We see all of these things. We see a man being commandeered to help. We see then our Savior being laid on the ground upon a cross his hands and feet being kneeled attached to that cross. We see the hammer blows. 
We see the cross then being lifted from the earth and dropped into that prepared hole. We see all of these things. We see two malefactors either side of the central cross. We see all of these as the company beheld Christ on the cross. Now darkness falls. A darkness like no other darkness. Three hours when the world was not permitted to see. And such is the starkness of this event that we must understand its profound significance. What could this darkness possibly mean? Is it the darkness, the darkness of God's wrath upon the world for their cruelty to His Son? I don't think so. Is it the darkness of creation groaning for the events transpiring on Calvary? I don't think so. This darkness is coming in the very hand of God, as he sheds this darkness, revealing certain things regarding the events that are transpiring on that cross in these three hours. So let's begin by considering the timing of the darkness. If we're going to understand the significance, what about its timing? And times are explicitly mentioned here in verse number 44. It was about the sixth hour, and darkness until the ninth hour. Now here you've got to understand the the way the Jews would count time, uh, 6 a.m., uh, around about 6 a.m. was R0, uh, and thus the third R was around about 9 a.m. Mark 15 tells us, and it was the third R, and they crucified him, Mark 15, 25. Therefore the Lord was crucified around 9 a.m. in our time. That was the R of the morning sacrifice. If you remember the Jewish practice of the sacrifice, there was the morning and the evening sacrifice, and our Lord was attached to the cross in around the time of the morning sacrifice. The sixth hour mentioned here is midday, noon, the time when the sun is at its brightness, and here we find darkness befalls the earth for three hours. By the time we get to the ninth hour, the Lord has been hanging for three hours or for six hours upon uh, the cross. He suffered the greatness of his physical agonies. And the ninth hour is the time of the evening sacrifice. The morning sacrifice, the evening sacrifice, serving, if you like, as parenthesis around the sufferings of our Savior, indicating, I believe, at least hinting towards the truth that during this time of darkness, Christ is performing the work of the atoning sacrifice. He is the one at that point who is dying as a substitute, bearing the sin transferred to him and taking the place of the sinner. It's a pointer, but the R's are not inconsequential, and to the Jewish understanding, these would be very significant. The timing of the darkness, which leads in the second place to the termination of the darkness. You see, there is a cry that breaks the darkness As the three R's conclude, there is a cry. We've got that in verse number 46. And when Jesus had cried with a loud voice. Now that cry is not the cry recorded in verse number 46. We'll come to that next Lord's Day. Father, into thy hands I commend my spirit. He also cried that with a loud voice. But the language here indicates a cry that precedes that subsequent cry. And the cry, of course, is that recorded for us by Matthew, in Matthew 27, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? 
Matthew makes the point that that cry is with a loud voice. And he tells us, and about the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. And so it is that loud voice cry that is recorded here. The words are not given by Luke in Luke 23, but we have the the words in Matthew chapter 27. The Lord's cry is quoting, of course, the 22nd Psalm. And that cry serves, I believe, very clearly as a commentary on the darkness. What does this darkness signify? What does it mean? The Lord has forsaken His Son. Those three hours at the time when the Lord has suffered the agony of soul as He is forsaken by His Father. The Lord asked that question, Why? Why hast thou forsaken me? Understanding, therefore, the fact that this expression is the expression of a mystery. Things that we cannot fully comprehend. We do know that it does not mean that there was a separation in the Trinity between the love enjoyed between Father and Son. There is no separation here with the Trinity. We understand the Lord, even being testified from heaven, the Lord to the Father says to the Son, This is my beloved Son. And it's interesting that John chapter 10 records these words, Therefore doth my Father love me, because I lay down my life. And so the Father's love for the Son is, if you like, it's at its very height, at the height of His obedience. He's obedient to death, even the death of the cross. And so the Father's love is of this intense form as the Son obeys the will of the Father, giving His life a ransom for many. This is not a separation between the Father and the Son in terms of the Father's love for the Son. Nor is it a separation of the Father's support for the Son, nor the Spirit's support for the Son. You think of the suffering servant in Isaiah, Isaiah 53, that gives us the description of the Lord's sufferings. And of course, in the context, Isaiah 42, mine elect, my servant whom I uphold. The Father upholds the God-man in all of his sufferings. So it's said in the Scriptures, Hebrews chapter 9, that the Son offers himself through or by the eternal Spirit. John Favell, the Puritan, says this, Though God deserted Christ, yet at the same time he powerfully supported him. His omnipotent arms were under him. Though his pleased face was hid from him, he had not indeed his smiles, but he had his supportations. You've got to be careful you don't be guilty of some great theological heresy by dividing the Trinity in terms of the words, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? So what does it mean? What does the cry that ends the darkness mean? Well, it means what the Lord says. It means that he was forsaken of the Father. There was this sense of divine abandonment. You've got to think, What does the Bible teach about the sentence of divine abandonment and judgment and condemnation? You think of the words of Jeremiah chapter 7, where it says, The Lord hath rejected and forsaken the generation of His wrath. And so the forsaking of someone by the Father is in light of His wrath toward them. He forsakes the generation of His wrath. Jeremiah 7 verse 29 And so we see in the New Testament the words of Christ, Depart from me, ye that work iniquity. 
And so the wrath of the Father brought upon those who practice iniquity then leads to them being forsaken and that judicial sentence depart from me. The same is said, of course, in the picture of the final judgment day in Matthew chapter 25, depart from me, and here's significance, depart from me ye cursed. The connection of the Lord's sentence to the cursed is very, very important. You see, in light of what we have seen, we must understand the Lord's cry here that terminates the darkness is not the Lord's simple feeling or perception. It is a reality. We, we cannot plumb the depths of the cry, but he does not die in disillusionment. He is not being let down by the Father. He maintains strong faith. My God, my God. And yet he comes under the sentence of condemnation. He cries out to his God because he has actually been forsaken by the Father, strengthened by the Father, supported by Father and Spirit, but separate from the light of God's favor. Habakkuk, thou art of pure eyes, and behold, evil, and canst not look on iniquity. I've said you have drawn the connection. The Father's wrath upon those who are under his curse. The Father's wrath upon those who are guilty of iniquities. The Father's wrath upon a wayward generation. And so you think of the blessings of number six. The Lord bless thee and keep thee. And what is part of that ironic blessing? The Lord make his face shine upon thee. The Lord lift up his countenance upon thee. Those are the words of those who are blessed. And so Christ now, he is not enjoying the blessing of God, but he's suffering the curse of God. And therefore God's countenance is not lifted up toward his son. His face does not shine upon his son. And darkness falls. The darkness falls. And the cry that terminates the darkness gives a commentary on that darkness. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And the Lord, of course, could well say why there was no cause, no cause for this act in Christ himself. He was wholly harmless, undefiled, is bruised for our iniquities, made sin for us, forsaken not for his own crimes, but for our crimes. The word forsaken, of course, is therefore explained by the darkness. And the darkness is explained by the cry. Thirdly, if we're going to understand this darkness, we should think about the thought of darkness in the Scriptures. Well, we're seeing all of these things coming together, and we're getting the same answer every time. There are Various metaphors used for the Lord's presence in the Scriptures. Of course, the image of light is used. He dwells in light, unapproachable. But what people often forget is that darkness is also used as an image of the Lord's presence. You turn back to the 97th Psalm and you will see in the 97th Psalm the description of the Lord's throne. And the description used has, in part of its terminology, language of darkness of Psalm 97. And the verse number 2, well, let's read in verse 1. The Lord reigneth, let the earth rejoice, that the multitude of isles be glad thereof. Clouds and darkness are round about him. But listen to the description then in the parallels. Righteousness and judgment are the habitation of his throne. And this is a very important text in understanding the darkness. 
that God is present in darkness, particularly as relates to judgment and his law. Righteousness and judgment are the habitation of his throne. God's a God of absolute justice, and that is epitomized in this term, darkness round about him. Never forget the description of Sinai. What happens in Sinai? The people stand afar off, Exodus 20, 21, and Moses draws near. And where does he draw into? He draws into, onto the thick darkness where God was. Where God was. And so you see in the Old Testament scriptures, particularly, you see several occasions when wrath is described in terms of darkness. The judgment of God upon the Egyptians, those various plagues, there was, of course, a plague of darkness. And as Moses stretched out his hand, there was a darkness over the land of Egypt, even the darkness which may be felt. Such was the profound nature of this darkness that actually was, was, was almost touchable by those who were experiencing such a profound display of God's justice and judgment. You turn across to Joel. Daniel, Hosea, Joel. You go to Joel. Joel chapter 2. You have here language describing the day of the Lord. Joel 2 verse 1. Blow ye the trumpet in Zion. Sound an alarm in my holy mountain. Let all the inhabitants of the land tremble. For the day of the Lord cometh. For it is nigh at hand. A day of darkness and of gloominess. A day of clouds and of thick darkness. Again, the language is language of predicting judgment, and the metaphor that's used is of this darkness. Darkness as a display of the presence of God in wrath and in justice. Zephaniah also describes a similar scene, a day of wrath, a day of trouble and distress, a day of wasteness and desolation, a day of darkness. Zephaniah 1 verse 15. But you turn across one more book to the book of Amos, Amos chapter 5, and you'll see from Joel to Amos, Amos chapter 5, verse number 2, there is the description of Israel. She shall no more rise. She is, listen to the words, she is forsaken upon her land. And Amos describes God's work in that. Verse number 8, seek him that maketh the seven stars and Orion and turneth the shadow of death into the morning. And listen, and maketh the day dark with night. These are the words of God's judgment. As judgment falls, so darkness falls in these various pictures. Amos chapter 8. Perhaps the most significant of all of these references, Amos chapter 8, verse number 9. Again, the language of justice and judgment. And it shall come to pass in that day, saith the Lord God, that I will cause the sun to go down at noon, and I will darken the earth in the clear day. You see the picture here? Noon, the sixth hour, darkness falls in the land. To the Jewish reader, to the one who understands the Scriptures, they are seeing a display of the wrath and justice of God, the presence of God in darkness, indicating Him coming in justice. See, the darkness of Calvary is not a natural darkness. People try to explain it in terms of some sort of natural eclipse and it just happens to come. What, what carnality, what unbelief would lead to such a conclusion? See, we're seeing something that is the supernatural act of God, a three-hour spell of darkness. Even the secular writers at that time record a darkness coinciding with these events. Beyond the Scriptures, there's a recognition, this is a darkness like none other. 
And it is the fact that God came down in those three hours. God came down as he did in Sinai. He came down in justice and properly executed the sentence of justice upon the one who bore sin for us. The sin-bearing sacrifice is now confronted, enveloped in the wrath of God, enclosed in the darkness, the presence of God in his absolute pure justice and holy wrath. So Christ ends that darkness, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? That's something regarding the thought of darkness in the Scriptures, which leads to a fourth thought. Again, these are all connected, and that is the tearing that occurs with the darkness. Back to Luke chapter 23. And verse number 45 says this, And the sun was darkened, and the veil of the temple was rent in the midst. Now, if you read Matthew and you read Mark, the impression that is given there is that the veil was torn after the Lord gives up the ghost. But in those accounts, Matthew and Mark are, in some ways, they are listing the phenomena that occurs in light of Christ's death. But I think Luke is quite specific here, giving us the timing of this, that the veil is torn in the darkness. That at this time of darkness, the veil is torn. I'm not going to fight with you. It's hard to tease out the harmonies here. And I don't think we should be absolutely dogmatic. But I think Luke is certainly pointing us in that direction. And the sun was darkened, and the veil was rent in the midst. Some of the symbolism here is really profound. You think to the tabernacle, then the temple. What was behind the veil? Behind the veil was, of course, the Ark of the Covenant, inside which was the broken law, upon which sat the mercy seat, upon which blood was sprinkled, upon which the cherubim looked into. And there was no light behind the veil. The lampstand, that's where the showbread is. That's where the altar of incense is. But there is no means of light behind the veil. And so you almost get the sense also that as the cherubim look upon the broken law, it, it demonstrates the, the justice of God and God being present in darkness there. But of course, as the darkness falls upon the earth, the God-man, the Lamb of God, is fulfilling all of those types and shadows. He is the propitiatory. He is the mercy seat. He is the blood. He is the high priest. He's all of these things. And as all the types and shadows are fulfilled, as the darkness falls upon the earth, so the veil tears down, and the people of God can now enter. That's what we see. The darkness. The darkness is fulfilling all of the types whereby the veil is torn. You see, you think of the words, of course, of Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews chapter 10, verse number 19. Having therefore, brethren, boldness to enter into the holiest by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, which is consecrated for us through the veil, that is to say, his flesh, and having a high priest of the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. I love the hymn. I didn't actually understand this hymn was not a hymn book. No more veal. God bids me enter by the new and living way. Not in trembling hope I venture. Boldly I as call obey. 
There with him, my God, I meet God upon the mercy seat. The veil's torn. And I think Luke points us in the direction that the veil is torn in connection with the darkness that fell for those three hours. I suppose in simple terms, in the darkness, Christ atones finally for sin, whereby all that trust in him can enter with freedom and boldness because the veil is torn. The tearing that occurs with the darkness. And then finally, very briefly, the truth that comforts us when we consider this darkness. It was about the sixth hour, and there was darkness over all the earth. No darkness for the people of God. As Christ dies that vicarious, substitutionary death, so he takes the darkness on our behalf. We've seen the various pictures here, God's wrath symbolized in the darkness. But we've been saved from wrath through him. No condemnation. If we're saved from wrath, then we can never encounter this darkness. We see the darkness as one under God's curse. But we're not under God's curse, the people of God. We're not cursed of God. You might think your life is difficult, dear child of God, but you're not under the curse of God. All things are for your good. All things working for your good. And you go down through Romans chapter 8, and it's thundering the truths of Luke 23. He is our sin bearer. And therefore we are not under the curse and we can never never be under the darkness of God. The darkness that symbolized Christ being forsaken of the Father. And the word of God tells us, I will never leave thee nor forsake thee. That's the truth that comforts us when we consider this darkness. That's the truth that should drive our hearts to praise and give thanks to God. That's the truth that should cause us to to say, My Jesus, I love thee, I know thou art mine, and drive us to service, to drive us to evangelism, to drive us to worship. Oh, may these truths beat in your hearts today. May they so encourage your soul that you're not you're not in the like if you you're not if you like in the darkness of your own despondency. But you're enjoying the light of God's countenance. The Lord bless thee. The Lord keep thee. The Lord make his face to shine upon thee. Lift up the light of his countenance upon thee. Give thee peace. Your great high priest can pray that prayer for us now. Because he took the darkness that we can enjoy the blessing of God. Thank you for taking the time to listen to this episode of Let the Bible Speak from Malvern Free Presbyterian Church. If you'd like more information about the gospel or the church, please call 610-993-3170 or email malvernfpc at yahoo.com. We extend an invitation to all to join us as we worship the Lord each week. You will be made very welcome. The church is situated at 80 Mallon Road, Malvern, Pennsylvania, at the junction of 401 and Mallon Road. We meet for worship on the Lord's Day at 11 a.m. and 6 p.m. A Bible study and prayer meeting is also held on Wednesday evening at 7 p.m. We preach Christ crucified.